Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to The Spilled Tea, your place for the latest on pop culture, entertainment news, and LGBT issues. Now, here are your hosts. Hi, welcome to another edition of Spilled Tea. I am your host today, Emmy Morgan. I'm going to be the only host today. Um, I think I want to do the format a little bit differently. I think each week before it was always, you know, something topical, something um, discussed back and forth. When I'm doing the blog, or excuse me, the podcast alone, it's going to be a topic that is important to me. And um, so this week is going to be about my books. Um, I haven't really discussed in detail about my books. I think I did like one or two interviews here and there, but I've never kind of sat down and explained my books from my words so that you can get a fuller understanding. So back when I was younger, of course, um, I thought something was off with me. Wasn't sure what, wasn't sure why I was felt a little off, but I just felt like different from everybody. I didn't feel like I was quite a boy, but I didn't understand that I was a girl inside because it's not possible. It's not possible to be a girl on the inside and a boy on the outside. I didn't know anybody that did that. And I think my first memory of that was really honestly four years old because I remember putting on my mom's wool skirt and spinning around in it, and I thought, oh, my God, that is so cool that it spins. I don't have clothes like that. And so anytime my mom would would leave for the day or my aunt, because we lived in a three-family house, and my my mother and my half-brother and my godbrother and I were on the top floor, the third floor, my godbrother had his own bedroom and bathroom, and we had a bedroom for me and my half-brother. My mother had her own bedroom. Then there was a living space and, like I said, a bathroom. But we would just go downstairs to eat with the rest of the family. So anytime my mother would be gone and my, um, excuse me, my godparents would watch me, I'd be upstairs. Maybe I was playing in my room. Maybe I was you know, playing with my mom's stuff, but I was always playing and pretending because my half-brother didn't give a shit about me. He didn't care to entertain me or whatever. So I had to come up with my own imagination. And then somehow I met my godmother's um, best friend. Her name was Emily. And Aunt Emily was... And this is no slight to her. I'm not even joking with you. To me, as a kid, she reminds me of a Trinidadian Miss Piggy. Not that she was ugly or anything like that. She was just short and spunky, and she had big hair, and she wore high heels. And I was just, I was obsessed with Aunt Emily. And one day she told me, you know, you can always come over my house, and you can be whoever and whatever you want to be. So she only lived a bike ride away down the street. 
So it was perfectly normal for me to say, okay, I'm going to Aunt Emily's to watch a movie. Or um, my other, my godmother's other best friend was Aunt Essie. And Aunt Essie had diabetes. But her child was grown and out of the house. But Aunt Essie loved me too. So she was, you know, I could either go to Aunt Emily's or go to Aunt Essie's. So I would watch movies at Aunt Essie's and I would just play around in her makeup and stuff at Aunt, Aunt Emily's. So I lived there from the time I was like one, which was Clifford Street in Springfield, till the time, hmm, I want to say 1984-ish. And we left and we moved down the street to this place um, on Sherman Street. It was an apartment building. And I still was able to, you know, I was literally down the street, so I was still able to go to Aunt Essie, go to see my godparents and go to um, see Aunt Emily. But I felt a little bit removed. It was a little bit of a more, more of a travel, you know, but still. I was able to be who I wanted to be as a kid with these people. And, um, you know, at Aunt Emily's house, I would wear her high heels. I'd sometimes fall because I didn't know how to wear high heels. I'd put on her jewelry. I'd put on her makeup. It was fun, you know. Um, I did all of third grade there. And then um, we moved across the bridge, we moved like 30 minutes away to Feeding Hills Mass. I was devastated because I, did, I knew that I wouldn't be able to see these people on a regular basis, but I didn't know why. And the why was my mother wanted to get away from them. And also, it was a better life over there. I mean, I had green grass. I had a swimming pool. I had... Um, so much as a kid. I'm so grateful that I grew up in the, the place that I grew up in. But I was just, as a kid, I was devastated. And I remember before I left, the Christmas before we left, so we left in, we, we physically left Springfield September 1st, 1985. My grandmother had died in January of that year. So there was a lot going on. That summer, you know, we went to... Um, I mean, not that summer, a couple weeks after we went to her funeral down in Mississippi. And, you know, just a lot of change for me in 1985. And I remember that Christmas before, so December 1984, Emily gave me a necklace. And the necklace said, unique. And I didn't know what it meant at the time. I just knew that I got a present from one of my favorite aunts. She wasn't my real aunt, but... I was so happy. I got a present and I got a chain. Of course, you know, as a kid, I got it kinked up and I lost it and whatever. But I remember that. Wow, unique. I I love that. I love that. And my mother, I think she knew why, but nobody told, I mean, Emily or myself, we never discussed what I did at her place. We never talked about me, you know, putting on her makeup and stuff. At least I didn't. I don't know if Emily told my family or not, but I used to do other things too. Like whenever I'd go to my friend, my uh, cousin's house, or excuse me, my aunt's house, um, 
I would play with their Barbies and stuff and do their hair. And when I was removed from that situation and we moved to Aguam, I found these girls in my neighborhood that reminded me of my cousins. And their parents were so open about me playing with them. The only thing is I couldn't sleep over. So we would play Barbies. We would play pretend until like 9 o'clock at night. Then they had to go to bed, and I had to go to my house. And I was just devastated as a kid. I didn't understand that. But the one thing that uh, my, my, she, my sister by love, Jamie, the one thing she, she reminded me of, was probably the epitome of my childhood. Um, we had this, so the whole um, apartment complex, it was a Section 8 uh, apartment complex that so went by income, which I had no idea as a kid. I just knew it was beautiful, and any people that visited said it was so gorgeous there. On one side of it, as, towards the entrance, there was like thick woods. And the woods would go from the front entrance all the way towards the back. And then in the back of it, it was like a big square, first of all. So just imagine you you drive up the driveway to the entrance of this apartment complex. And then you see the fork going around um, the whole village. Um, On the right side of the fork, that whole side behind those houses were huge. Like, it, it was a huge thick, wooded area. Once you get towards the end of Paul Revere, which was the street on the right, you curve and you turn to the rest of the square. As you curve the turn, the woods in the back, they get thinner and thinner, and then you reveal the backyard of houses. Well, in this backyard of this one particular house is a whole pond with a, um, a deck. And we used to go down there. We used to play all the time. You know, we would always play in the woods. I don't even know how, as kids, we played in those woods. Looking back on it, we were just very fearless kids. We would play in those woods in the winter because the leaves would fall off and we would be able to see each other. We'd play hide-and-go-seek. We would play hide-and-go-seek in the summer, and we would hide under bushes. And it was just crazy. I don't even understand how we did some of the things we did. One time we went down to the pond, it was all of us kids, and I was the pastor. I was elected the the pastor of the priest, and so I had to marry couple after couple after couple. And when I was done with the last couple, I kind of stood there like, well, I'm not getting married. I'm a boy. I can't marry another boy. And I just remember feeling so unhappy with that. Am I going to be alone the rest of my life? I grew up with my mother. She never went on dates, or if she did, she didn't tell me. But she never had a boyfriend. She never brought a guy home. Am I going to be like my mother? Am I going to be alone? Because I can't be alone there. And so I think really that was when everything started, when I just thought, God, Why am I so different from everybody else? I don't understand. And so I just carried this inside, and I used to write journals and whatnot. And finally, when I was 
17, we had a winter break, and I was really sick, and I didn't even go outside at all. I was just so disgustingly sick. But my favorite thing to do was channel surf. And I was channel surfing, and I saw the Joan Rivers show, which I loved the Joan Rivers show back in the day. And out came this beautiful woman. She was tall, brown hair. She was gorgeous. And she sat down. Now, if anybody, some of you kids don't remember the Joan Rivers show, but growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was a shift in daytime. First of all, there was daytime dramas, you know, soap operas. But there were also talk shows and game shows, and these were so entertaining. So in the very early morning from, like, let's say, 7 to 9, there were cartoons, and there was morning news. So the parents could be in one room watching the morning news, and the kids can be in the other room watching cartoons. And we had quality cartoons, let me tell you. But then about 10 o'clock to, say, 2, it was game shows and talk shows back and forth. And in the 90s, it became talk shows about sensational topics. Everything from I'm marrying my daughter's boyfriend to I'm in love with my son and I'm the dad. Like, there were so many crazy topics. So when I saw this beautiful woman on the Joan Rivers show, I'm like, who is she? Is she an actress? Like, I don't understand. She said she was an actress. Her name was Tula. And Joan said, okay. And she's like, and I was born a man. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. How was this woman born a man? And then I was introduced to the phrase transsexual because that's what it was. That's what we were called at the time. We were called transsexuals. And I was like, what the frig is a transsexual? Well, a transsexual is somebody transitioning, which is the trans part, sexually, which is their sex. And I thought, oh, my God, what does that mean? So I started to research. I tried to research at school, but I really couldn't. I I really wasn't able to because I didn't know, like, our computers were watched in high high school. So I I couldn't do it. So, and we couldn't afford a computer back in 92. So I thought, oh, my God. So I started writing about that in my journals. You know, I think I know what I am now. I think I know who I want to be now. And then I thought, oh, my God, what's my name going to be? And I came up with the craziest names. You know, um, (laughs) it was kind of funny, some of the names I came up with. But I also started to think, what is my life going to be like? When I get older and I'm able to have this amazing surgery that this woman just said she had, what is my life going to be like? So I started to write about that life that I would have. And then I started incorporating my life to explain her backstory. And I said, what am I going to call this character? And Voltron at the time was my favorite cartoon next to Jem. But I couldn't call my my character Jem and I couldn't call myself Jem. I was obsessed with Princess Allura. And I wanted that name. I wanted the name Allura for myself. But what was I going to call this character? And then I thought, Allura sounds like a stripper. So I can't use that. 
maybe I'll call this character Allura because, I mean, I was going to make her a, a lowest of the low type of person, and I was going to make her this person who was a prostitute. And Because at the time I was also watching HBO <laughs> late at night, and it was this thing called something at Hunt's Point. I can't remember the title. But these um, these hookers, they did this, they did their jobs, obviously, to put food on the table and stuff. But I thought, I want to show that. I want to show how hookers live and stuff. I had no idea what the real story is behind some of my trans sisters. Um, no idea what their, what their stories were. I just wanted to create the most dramatic piece of fiction that you'd ever seen. And at the same time, I was kind of incensed by these soap operas, so I wanted to create a trans woman, well, transsexual, sorry, for daytime. And so I was writing a soap and a book at the same time, basically. And I wasn't sure how I wanted it to be. I knew that I wanted my book to be ultra dramatic, but I knew that I wanted my show for you to care about this woman. So I wanted her to come from a rich family. And, you know, she just got the surgery with her trust fund money. I, I didn't, I wasn't fully fleshed out with all the characters and whatnot. And then when I got to college, I had access every day, two hours a day for working in the library. I specifically worked at the library for my work study throughout my college years because I wanted to do that research. I wanted to know what a transsexual was like, how much the surgery cost, what, what would it entail. I wanted to know details. The first year I was there, I wasn't able to get the job. They had already been booked up. I was too late. But I still went to the library and I tried to do as much research as I could. But um, I, I had a limited time because you can only have you know, the study rooms for so long. There are computers in the middle. What if people walk by? So when I finally got the job the second year, I realized that there was so much material out there. There were books. There were um, books I can check out during work and photocopy pages and bring them home and read them. There was um, times when there was nobody but myself and my friend Devana in the library and she was in her periodical sections, and our bosses were in meetings, and I could run to the computer and research what I needed to research. It was so amazing working in that library, and it opened my eyes to so much. So I had stopped writing at this time, but I was doing all my research. And so my last year in college, I found out that there was a soap writing contest for Procter & Gamble, which was producing my soap opera, Young, um, excuse me, um, guiding light. And so I said, I'm going to enter, I'm going to become a soap writer, and then I'll get my surgery, and then everything will be perfect. My life will be so perfect, and I'll be able to put my book out, and I'll be able to write my own daytime drama. Well, obviously, that didn't go so well. Either they really hated my soap storyline or whatever, but I didn't get picked for the college soap writing contest, and I was miserable. I was depressed. There goes, my, there goes my whole plan. I stopped writing altogether. I gave up. I thought, 
well, that's it. That's God telling me that I need to stop and I need to move on and I need to find a new dream. So I decided my plan B, now that I have my degree in business, is that I'll just work a normal job. I'm really good at retail. I'll just do that for the rest of my life and die. So got my retail job, worked my way up at one company from sales associate to assistant manager, was very happy there, was working overtime left and right. I just, my life was good at that point. Then I heard my stores closing, so then I, I got a job, a desk job in customer service. Well, now I'm back to having this free time. I'm not working overtime anymore. I'm a nine-to-five job. I don't work weekends. What am I going to do with my time? So I started to pick up my writing again, and I realized, let me just do some more research. So on my breaks at work, I would research more. And it was in my head again. All right, I have a new plan. I'm going to transition while I'm here. And everything will be great. So we got a computer in 1999, finally. In 2001, I got this job. So... I was able to go back and forth between writing at home, researching at home, and writing at work and researching at work. It was back and forth, back and forth. And um, I was at that job for four years, got a new job, closer to same company, but in a close, uh, building closer to home. So I had less travel now. I wasn't traveling four to five minutes one way. I was traveling three minutes one way. So now I had all the time in the world to write and all the time in the world to research. I was doing it more and more. And with my writing, I would, when I was frustrated, I would tear everything up because I used to write by hand, actually. I had a huge folder my mother gave me. She gave me one of those thick binders, and we used to put filling paper in it, like college-ruled paper filler or filler paper, whatever it's called. That's how I was writing before the computer. Then when we got the computer, I was writing on a, a flash drive. Something would always happen in the flash drive, whether it would break or I'd lose it. So I'd have to start all over again. And it wasn't until, you know, this back and forth continued. And I actually started in 2001 to talk to a therapist about transitioning and I realized I wasn't in the space to do it. It cost $100,000 at the time to do it. From head to toe, you know, breast implants, um, the actual surgery, facial reconstruction, shaving the Adam's apple, all that other stuff. And I thought, I don't have $100,000. I'm not going to be able to do this. So I dropped it. I dropped it, and I always thought about it. And I dropped my writing, too. It's always, it was always tied together. If I wasn't going to transition, then there was no need for me to write. That's what I kept thinking. And so I stopped writing altogether. So I had mentioned Jamie, who was one of my sisters by love, when we moved to 
Pheasant Hill Village in Feeding Hills, Aguam, in 1985, I met a bunch of kids. Like, the whole neighborhood was just littered with kids my age. My age, one year younger, a couple years younger, I was able to, to to this day, I'm still able to keep those friendships that I made in 1985. Um, September 1st, 1985, I got out of my, my, my mother's, uh, or excuse me, my uncle's truck. I saw this huge rubber band fight with these kids. Well, they were, fight, they were like play fighting, and I didn't know, understand what was going on. So I ran over there, and it was a rubber band fight. And I'm like, these kids are crazy. They're shooting rubber bands at each other's heads and butts and eyes, and it was crazy. So I jumped in the middle of it, just like I knew these kids, and that's how I met all of my friends. Jamie wasn't there. She, she came in in 1986, and I remember distinctly meeting her at the basketball park, and I was like, who are you? And she's like, I'm Jamie. She was eight. I was 10 at the time. She had this long hair. And um, it was June of 86, I remember, and she had a younger sister uh, named Mandy, who was like two or three years younger than her. She had a younger brother, Brett, who was a year younger than Mandy. And then she had a younger sister, Ashley, who was a year younger than Brett. And all the girls had long hair, long, long, long hair, except for Ashley. She had short blonde hair. And Brett had this, you know, the 80s spike hair. And I thought, these kids are so adorable. But they're not friendly. I'm trying to talk to them, and they're not friendly. Well, years go by. Of course, because I'm older, the mother, and I, I went over to their house. I made this, like, plate or something. I don't know. Long story short. But I became friends with her, but we weren't, like, best friends. But her mother absolutely loved me. So when I got a little bit older than Jamie, like 15, she was 13. Her mother didn't trust her because her mother was dating this guy who was, his name is Ed. He was working for the New York Islanders as a physical trainer. So when Brenda, her mom, would go to New York to hang out with Ed for the weekend or whatever, or Ed would cut, well, actually then, yeah, um, she needed somebody to watch the kids. So I was there. I was the one that was watching the kids. I was kind of helping Jamie, but basically I was keeping Jamie out of trouble too. So, yeah, she used to pay me like 20 bucks. I would sleep over. I'd sleep on the couch. I'd sleep in Brett's room, wherever. But that's how I got close to them, and so they were my siblings by love. Well, fast forward to 2011, February 26, 2011, I get a text message from the little blonde girl, Ashley. Her husband texted me and said, Brett died. And I was like, what? That, that doesn't make any sense. How could he die? What happened? So what happened was, um, <clears throat> at 10 years old, Brett was riding his bike, didn't see an, a truck or something happened with a truck, and a Mack truck actually hit him. He was in the hospital Ever since he was 10, he had these seizures, these massive seizures. Well, they weren't massive when he was younger, but they kept getting worse and worse to the point where when he got older, he couldn't even drive a car. I wasn't there for any of his seizures. He never had a seizure around me, but... um, 
he was like my my little brother. He was the brother I never had. And it was weird that I'd never seen one of his seizures because, I mean, I was around them a lot. I was around that whole family a lot. So when he died, something in me kind of broke, literally physically broke. And I wasn't talking to Jamie at the time because we got into a fight, and it had been four years since I talked to Jamie or Mandy. I was still talking to Ashley. So I went down to Brett's memorial service. Jamie and I looked at each other, and we're just like, yep, we're over it. We're over it. That's it. We're not going to be mad at each other. It's so stupid. We're just over it. That was when I decided I needed to move back. She had a son, Dietrich. Mandy had a kid, and I just needed to be closer to my family. I remember the week after his funeral, it was a Sunday. Um, I hadn't cried. I hadn't been emotional. I was just still in shock from, from literally the 26th until, I want to say March, I don't know, 11th or something. I can't remember. But I remember the next day I was supposed to go to work, and then on that Monday. And then on the Tuesday, I had that Tuesday off for jury duty. I woke up the next Monday and it hit me and I couldn't get out of bed. And I called my boss literally crying. I was broken, like beyond anything I experienced in my entire life. I was just broken. And all day on Monday, I stayed in my bed. I I got up maybe to pee maybe to shower, to eat. But other than that, I was in my bed bawling all day long. And I'm not a religious person. I don't go to church or anything like that, but I'm very spiritual. I do believe that there is a God. I do believe there is a heaven and a hell. And my belief system in God was so shooken. Um... I didn't know what to do with myself, how to feel. I, I, did, I was just blank inside. I was totally blank. So then I went to the jury duty, didn't get selected, and I had the whole day to myself. And I thought, oh my God, I have this whole day. What am I going to do with myself? And then I said, I need to plan how to move back home. I need to plan how to move back home to the people that I love. So in June of that year, 2011, I did move back. Became closer with Jamie, everybody. It was great. Um, Somewhere in the summertime, I started thinking, I think life is too short. And I think what I need to do is stop going back and forth and release this book. This book I've been working on since I was 17 years old. It's not perfect, but I need to do it. And the guy at the time I was dating said, you can do it, but it's not like anything's going to happen. You're not going to like become famous or anything. And I was so pissed at him for saying that. Because what he was telling me was that I'm going to be nothing and I'm going to be no one. 
And so it became my thing to prove to him that I would be something. So without it being reviewed and grammatical errors and all of that, I published it. I just, I had to get it out there. And then I found out that most writers do that. They do, when they self-publish, they put the book out, they wait for it to get big, and then they hire somebody to, you know, really do something with it and review it and whatnot. So I broke up with him, moved back home, and I was on another journey. I started thinking about transitioning more and more. And by now I had my own computer, my own laptop. I was able to research things. Well, 2013 wasn't the best year for me. I um, lost my job. I was living at home. I still had the contact with Jamie and her family, but my home life wasn't great. And I thought, this is it. I'm back to being that helpless little kid who doesn't have any future, and, I'm not, and nothing's going to change for me. So lo and behold, in 2014, January 2014, when I get this random email saying, hey, we have this job for you, it led me to where I am today with the company that I'm with today. I moved back to Boston. Well, first, let me back up. I got the job at their Springfield location, then got the job at their Brockton location, which is near Boston. I started in the Springfield location in February, and then I started in August in their Brockton location. I didn't have a place to live in Brockton, so I was traveling one way, two hours each day, back and forth to Springfield. And it was nice. I was able to be in Boston. Some days I just, I would walk around Boston after work, and it was awesome. I couldn't wait to move. I knew that I would be able to move, but I didn't know how. How I would find a place. I don't have any money saved up. What was going to happen? Lo and behold, my friend Jeremy, who I had worked with at Express, where I went up the ladder, you know, from sales associate to um, assistant manager, I knew him from there. We had been friends since. I met him back in 2000. He says, oh, I have a place available. Do you want it? And I said, absolutely, yes. So I moved there in October, but, you know, that whole time I was traveling back and forth. So October 2014, I was back, back at the place I was in 2001. No long commute. You know, maybe there's a commute to work, which was 20 minutes, working Monday through Friday, I had time again. I had time to take a look at my book that was now published and do certain things that I wasn't able to do before. And I realized I need to transition. I need to do it. And I can't turn back now. But how am I going to do it? So I went to the doctor's. My, annu- my annual physical. This new company was amazing. The benefits were amazing. They give you a free checkup every year, your annual checkup. Mine decided to be December. 
I went back to the doctor that I had left in 2010 here in Boston. So I'm sitting there waiting for the doctor to come in, and I'm looking around his office, and I see this flyer on the wall that says, Considering Transitioning? And it had little tear-offs, and it had all this little like, information on the flyer. And I thought, oh, my God, is that God telling me that this is it? This is what I need to do? So I ripped off the little tear sheet, stuffed it in my pocket. The doctor came. I got home, took off my clothes. The little pamphlet or the little, like, tear-off fell on the floor. I was like, oh, that's right. I forgot about that little piece of paper. What do I do? Like, I'm st- I was staring at that piece of paper for five minutes. I didn't know what to do. So I said, this is the closest I've ever come. I need to move forward. I called the number, left a message. The next day while I was at work, I got a phone call from the person saying, you left a message in regards to transitioning? <laughs> it was like, I was like, uh... And we had this 30-minute conversation about transitioning, about how much it costs. And then she even said, you might want to check your benefits. Your company might be able to pay for it. I'm like, oh, my God, are you serious? And the price went down. It was at 25000 And the hormones that you take made you grow boobs. So... The first three years that you transition from male to female are your puberty. So basically, as of March 18th, 2015, when I took the first, my first hormone pill, I started at 13 all over again. I was going through another puberty, two puberties in one lifetime. That's just wonderful, right? But it was wonderful. It was amazing. And... She had told me that in going through this second puberty, your body develops the way you would have developed if you were born the opposite sex. So she even said most of the people that she knew in that transition did not get breast augmentation. So I didn't need breast implants. Of course, all the women in my family, most of them have double digit, double letters after their bra size. So I was, like, terrified that that's what was going to happen to me. And thankfully it hasn't, but they, they're getting to the point where I can almost not see my feet, so that's kind of strange to me. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, hopefully they'll stop at some point. I have another year, and they will stop. Um, but also she said, you know, things like my face will change and, body hair will get softer and and less dense and fat distribution and my metabolism would slow down and all these other things that were going to happen. And I thought, oh, my God. Well, I called my insurance company and they said they do not. So the insurance company does cover the surgery because it makes it medically necessary to have the surgery to avoid depression, suicide, but my company 
excluded it, probably because nobody had taken advantage of it, and it's probably an expensive rider. So I was like, oh, crap, now I have to save up $25,000. This sucks. So I started taking the hormones in March. I made the decision the December before, and I started slowly telling people. One person I told was my union steward at work. She's like, all right, you're going to do this, do this. When do you want to do this? I said, August 1st. Oh, my God, I can't believe I just said that. She's like, nope, stick to it, August 1st. I'm like, but I don't have any clothing. I don't have the, the right wigs. Like, I don't know what to do. She's like, stick to it, August 1st. Okay, so August 1st, I came in. Well, August 3rd, actually. August 1st was a Saturday. August 3rd, I came in. A little bit more girly, but I wasn't ready yet. People were surprised. I kind of looked like a feminine, very feminine gay guy. That's what I looked like. Where's the wigs? Where's the hair? Where's the neck? Like, why aren't you girly? And I said, I need time. I can't do this just out of the gate. I have to have time. So then September, I came out. I remember September, the week before September 11th, I had made the decision to buy a wig. I got food poisoning, and I wasn't able to go to work, which is near the place that I wanted to buy the wig at. The next week, that Friday, I did it. I bought the wig came in on Monday, and it was like I was a rock star. People were coming up to me. Oh, my God, you look so pretty. Your makeup looks good. Your wig looks good. And that's when I realized this is who I'm supposed to be. It's not that I was trying to get people to compliment me. It's just the person that I was that day I came into work with that wig was the person that I felt inside I should be. Started seeing a therapist, and I actually took a look at my book in 2016, and I said, let me just, let me just look at this, because I wrote this as a different person. Let me take a look at my books and see who I am now. And so I started rewriting them, with the help of an editor, I did pay for an editor with my first bonus um, last year. And the editor's like, you got to take this big, huge book and split it up into three books because it's just too much. There's too much information going on. You need each book to have its own life. And so that's what I did. My first two books are out. And they're not from the depressing um, person that it that they are from when I started writing. You know, Desiree does go through some things, but it's bad because Desiree at first was written by David who wanted to be bleak and wanted to show, you know, the struggles of trans women. But now that I know as Emily the struggles of trans women and what we go through, do we really need to read a book for entertainment purposes? 
to showcase that. And of course, you know, I, I think I, I think you could pick up on it, but the reason why I chose the name Emily is because of my aunt. My aunt Emily, she passed away in 2009. Of course, throughout all those years, I'd lost touch, but I felt like this was my way of honoring her. I legally changed my name December 23rd, 2015. And when I got that certificate, in February 2016, because they never sent me anything, let's not even talk about that, it was weird looking at it. That's my new name. Wow. I couldn't believe it. And if I were to do it all over again, I would still pick the name that I picked because I feel like this name fits who I am and, and what I am. The name in German means industrious. And... If you don't know what industrious means, it means somebody who's, you know, strong-willed and basically doesn't take no for an answer. So that's, that couldn't be more me. So um, when I was writing my books, I decided, all right, I'm going to be I, – I like the middle name Morgan for some reason. My mother had said the – re, the way that I got the name Desiree is because my mother said if I was born a girl, she would have named me Desiree Morgan. But I just named my character Desiree, so I thought it would be stupid to have that name because then people would confuse us. But I like the middle name Morgan. So Emily Morgan is already an actress. She's already somebody that's out there. And when I started to rewrite my books, my purpose was not to be famous anymore. My purpose was to make a positive trans character. I also wanted to make positive trans characters in film and come up with different screenplays. So I knew that I'd be transitioning from books to film one day. So I couldn't do Emily Morgan. I couldn't become that person. So I thought, well, what are the nicknames for the name Emily? And I saw Emma, I saw all these different things. But then I saw the name Emmy, and I thought, wow. The only Emmy I remember, aside from Emmy Rossum on Shameless, was the Emmy from the 90s. She was a plus-size model, and people told her, you're too fat to model. And I thought, oh, my God, I could, I could use that name because – she was told she can't do something, and I'm told I can't do something. So, and, not, and I wasn't told by anybody outside. I was told by myself I couldn't do it. So I was rebelling against myself. So Emmy Morgan became my pen name, my stage name. So that's why I use that name. But like I was saying, I wanted to portray Desiree as a real character, not some fictionalized version of a real person, but a real character. So when I was rewriting my, my, my book, I decided to do two things, actually three, put more of myself into it, my, my real self, put more of my fears, and put more of my hopes. 
out came this trilogy. I'm still working on the third one, but these books are so personal. And at first I was like, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to rewrite them. I, I, I want to rewrite them for me, but I don't want to republish them because I'm scared. What if people don't like them? That means that they don't like me. And then I thought, well, whatever. If they don't like you, they don't like you. Not everybody has to like you. But what if you reach that one person who reads this book, gains hope, and doesn't do something bad to themselves or other people? What if this is the one thing that inspires one person? And so I said, well, maybe I should. So to me, it doesn't really matter how many I sell, how many books I sell. I just want people to read it. I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever. It's not about the book sales. It's about the experience they have when they read it. Of course, I'm a, you know, a dreamer. I want to sell millions and millions of books, obviously. But I live for those moments when people come up to me at work who have read it or I get a message from my friends or somebody who's online messages me and says, I really, really like your book. The first thing I ask is, who's your favorite character? They always say Desiree. And I thought, wow, (laughs) as funny as it is, she's not my favorite character. But it it always amazes me that that is, like, they don't even wait. Desiree, obviously. Okay. Okay. I tried to make her this time real, close to me, flawed, not perfect. And it was tough. Because when you look at yourself and you see your flaws, it's tough to put those in writing. But I did it. I tried to do it. The reason why I'm taking so long with the last book is because of a couple of things. One, I want it to be perfect, obviously. And two, it's hard to let this character go. She's been with me since I was 17. But what I have done is I introduced a character in this third book that will have her own book, but then will lead into the soap that I've created since I was 17 and, you know, written and rewritten. So I'm working on that synergy as well, which is so... It's been cool for me because I'm able to keep the character of Desiree alive inside of this person but I'm also able to let her go because it's not her. It's another I, – I, you'd have to read the third one. I, I, I'm really excited about it. I have to finish it first for you to read it, right? Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about these three books. I think I'm going to spend the next couple years really promoting them more, getting into different um, avenues, doing things that I'm uncomfortable with, Um, I think it's important for me to grow, for me to get a bigger audience. 
I'm not ashamed to say that I want these books to make millions of dollars for myself, but that's not really my end goal. My end goal is to have this be something that starts a conversation. So because of this book, this writer writes this, and this writer writes that, and maybe someone comes to me and says, oh, I want to do something else with your book, bring it to another medium. That'd be great. So this is the story about me and my books. Um, God, I feel like I was doing a job interview. <laughs> I've never talked that long consistently. Um, or maybe I have. But this felt um, good to finally explain myself and get people to understand. I don't know if anybody follows me on Instagram or Twitter, um, it's Emmy Morgan 76 on Instagram, Twitter. I have my own Facebook page and Snapchat. The last couple minutes of this podcast, I'm just going to um, tell you that I posted two things. One for trans is beautiful, hashtag trans is beautiful, created by um, Laverne Cox. And the other one is the explanation of the trans visibility day, trans, transgender day of visibility, sorry. Um, So trans is beautiful is not about trans women and trans men giving ourselves compliments, saying that we're hot. It's not about that. We're not saying that that, that we're good looking. We're not saying, you know, stroke our own egos. We're saying the fact that we are living our authentic lives and that people are accepting us as we are authentically is beautiful. Transitioning is a beautiful thing, and that's what we're celebrating when we put that hashtag up. People were confused that we were being vain, but that's not it. The um, day of visibility for trans people is not about showcasing, hey, we're here. That's not it. You know, everybody knows we're here. It's about telling each other, well, both hashtags, um, every March 31st is the day of trans visibility, but both hashtags are not only telling the world, but telling each other that we're in this together. What What I've experienced is that the trans community is so much more inclusive than what I experienced as a gay man. But then again, what I experienced as a gay man didn't feel right. So, of course, it's not going to feel, you know, the same as being a trans woman. Um, when I meet another trans person, um, especially a trans woman, I call her sister. And I call trans men brother because um, that's who they are. We're in this together, like I said. My favorite trans person of all time, Alexandra Gray, she is doing what I'm hoping that I do one day, which is she's in Hollywood and she's doing roles and she's doing different roles and she's playing the girlfriend, she's playing the drug addict, she's playing different aspects of trans people and I love that. They're not all glamorous. Some of them are, but some of them aren't and I love that about her. And she's my favorite person. Um, Also, um, there are people that aren't famous that I talk to all the time. 
I won't say their names because I don't want, I didn't get their permission to talk about them, so I'm not going to call them out. But, yeah, that's where I'm at right now in my life. I, I feel so included. And I also found a trans group that I go to every other Tuesday. Well, I'm doing it every month. But they have meetings every other Tuesday, and it's so nice to be able to just talk, just talk, you know. Um, the hardest part for me, transitioning, which if this is the hardest thing I'm going, going to go through, then I'm pretty lucky, is dating. I mean, it just sucks, to be honest with you. I'm steadfast in the fact that I'm not going to have sex until I'm in a relationship, so to have these guys approach me sexually and ask me, you know, things about my body and, you know, will I come over to hook up with them? It's just, it's frustrating. It's annoying. And I'm still sticking to my guns. And I'm proud of myself for doing that because I, I could be the person that says, you know, oh, I'm going to be alone forever. Maybe I'll just have sex with him and then maybe he will, develop feelings for me and I'm not that person I'm stronger than that I'm I'm okay alone I do get lonely sometimes but I'm I'm okay I'm happy I didn't come all this way to have it all fall apart because I'm not in a relationship you know but yeah so this is this is it this is my story I think I'm probably not going to go into detail ever again because this is a lot to process for myself and for anybody listening, but I feel good about this podcast and I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do it. Um, My two books, they're called The Ice Princess and The Family of Portraits. They're out on Amazon, Kindle, The Nook, BarnesandNoble.com, Google Play, and iTunes. Pick them up. I guarantee you will like them. If you are a supporter of transgender rights, if you are a trans person yourself, I think you will identify with either a trans person or a non-trans person in the book. You will love it, really, truly. Um, I've had a great time today, and I hope you all have a great Sunday. Um, But again, yeah, pick up the books. I actually have a, a Twitter account for the books as well. <clears throat> it's called um, Who I Am Book. Um, it's on, like I said, on Twitter, but you can always follow me. And I will um, talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Feel thirsty for more tea? Then check out our upcoming and archived shows right here on our Blog Talk Radio page. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Spilled Tea and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash The Spilled Tea. Thanks for listening to tonight's episode of The Spilled Tea.